thing. Let, let me wish all of you a happy new year. I know I probably should have done that some other time, but frankly, you know, it's still the new year. We're still all adjusting to it. We don't write nearly the checks we used to, but I'm still going to ask how many of you put 21 in that slot where the year goes. Okay. Um, I actually wrote a couple of checks the other day, and, and I had to get another check out and look at it because I couldn't remember what all went in those spaces. It, uh, you know, we've, we've become a, an electronic world. We uh, pay with plastic and hope the green money comes in in time to pay for it. But I think we're all pretty much in the same spot. You know, the new year starts a lot of different things. For many, the start of the new year, we make these things called New Year's resolutions. But honestly, the 1st of January is no different than the 1st of July, other than July's warmer, and no different than the 9th of August, which is still even warmer still. But every day that the calendar brings us, and every turn of the year, every day is the same. Same number of hours, same number of seconds, but I realize that as human beings, some of us need a point of demarcation to make a change. For many, it's when you got married. You changed the way you lived. You changed the way you thought. For others, it's a big birthday. I know there's some, there's some youngins in the group that are really looking forward to that day when they can drive a car. And we're all shuddering in fear. Right? Not saying they'll be bad drivers. I just a little seasoning for most of them would probably help. Maybe it's uh, the excitement and the expectation of entering that trade that you've chosen in the year. And then maybe it's the shock of leaving that trade that you've done for so many years. You know, I found myself, as I prepared for this, looking at the New Year's going, I'm not much of a New Year's resolution guy. I really don't see the need to declare how I'm going to change the way I live based upon a day of the year. There's some big days in my life and in yours. The day your kids are born, you go from being a happy-go-lucky guy with money in your pocket to having kids. <laughs> kids equals no money. You change based upon what is happening in your world, what is happening in your life. The last New Year's resolution I made, I have kept, and it was to make no more New Year's resolutions. And I've been, I've been consistent for years now. But I want to explore some things that will profit us in this quote-unquote New Year, and hopefully every year preceding. How many years we're going to have to perfect this, I do not know. Some of us may not make it through the end of the year. Some of us may not make it to the end of the service. Some of us might live another 50, 60, 70 years. Boy, I hope not for me. I, I watched Betty White's thing on TV or I read about her passing and I thought, I don't want to live to be that old. I really don't. I don't want to live to be 100. I already get made fun of, fun of enough the way it is. I don't want to be that much older. But it's a tried and true formula that I believe I'm going to bring to you today that will get you to where God wants you to be in the year 2021, 22, whatever this is. See there? It's 22, isn't it? Yeah. Whew. I'm having a hard time with this year thing. 
and I think it'll get us where we need to go. Join with me as I read through the first eight verses of the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Actually, I'm probably going to start it at verse 2. Colossians is my favorite New Testament book. If you know me very well, you know that it is the place I run to when I need comfort. It's the place I run to when my faith has been tested. It's the place I run to when I need to read something that brings about thought and change in my life. It is my favorite book. I hope you have one that is near and as dear to you as this book is to me. Paul writing in verse 1, he said, an apostle, Paul, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our dear brother and bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we start another year. How many we have left, we don't know. We do know that when our days are done, when our years have reached their final point, that you will be there. We also know that as our days go through and as our days pass and the days become years, that you will never change, that your word will never change, your promises will never change, your character will never change, your son will never change. And we can relish in the fact that even though we change and we fall and we rise back up, that you are always the same. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name, amen. The Apostle Paul starts his letters this letter as he normally does, he says, grace to you. Paul is addressing believers. When you read this book, don't forget the audience. You know, they say in acting school, you kind of have to play to your audience. And you have to understand who's there. And I think when we read scripture, we have to do the same thing. We have to understand that Paul wrote this to believers. He wrote this to a group of people in a city that were part of the church. And that it is with that intent, all the things he discusses and all the things he moves forward with are all very much geared towards the believer. He says grace, and that is an act of extending to others that which you desire for yourself. To be kind and forgiving, not forgetting that it is the grace of God extended to you for redemption. And it should be our spiritual condition as individuals. Grace is that marvelous thing that comes into your life that allows you to step back and say, okay, I'm good with what's happening. You may not like what's happening, but in grace, you can extend to people a loving hand and a hug and say, it's going to be okay. Grace allows you to give 
that which you desire to receive. Let's face it, I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. I want to experience that grace of God. I want you to give me that grace of God. I want those things in my life, so how can I not want to give them to you? The greatest gift you can give to someone is an honest and open heart full of grace that says, I care about you. I want to be in your life. I want you to understand how important you are to me. We live in a world that is literally fractured. It is broken. It is more broken now. Nope, not true. World's always been broken. We're just broken in a little different way. Instead of having some really big pieces, now we've got a whole bunch of little pieces. And we have people that are unwilling to extend grace to each other. I've never seen people lose their mind over not enough fries in my Happy Meal or road rage to the point where they're unwilling for grace to abound. We as Christians should be extending grace to every person we meet to esteem them better than ourselves. Why? Because it's in that fractured world and that grace-giving heart of ours that we will get an opportunity potentially to share what makes us different. Grace is what should identify the believer. Not graceful, because if that's the case, I'm out of luck. I am not a graceful person. But I can be graceful in giving that which God has given to me. God has extended to me a huge amount of grace. Grace is something you can never earn. You can never give of your own grace. Grace extends beyond that. Grace is the sovereign tool of God, and only God can wield true grace. You can be a mirror of God's grace and reflect it, or you can be a hoarder of God's grace and never extend it to anyone else. It's that point when you hoard it for yourselves that God's grace will no longer affect you as it should. It's, an, it's a natural outpouring in our lives of the presence of God via the Holy Spirit. You can't give grace without God being in your life. And not just in an intellectual way. I, intellectually, I believe Ben Franklin lived. But I've never seen him. I've seen his picture on a $5 bill. I don't know if he actually flew a kite with a key on it and lightning struck it. Seems pretty stupid for such a smart guy to do. Fly a kite in a lightning storm, that's just dumb. And well, maybe he didn't know that. Maybe that's why he discovered electricity. But if God is real in your heart, if Christ has come into your life, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you in love, then you have the ability and the, you should have the desire, you have the responsibility to be a reflection of God's grace as you go through your daily living. It's not just a prayer you say over a meal. It is literally a lifestyle. Moving on, he says, and peace. I don't know about you. I can't hardly watch TV. I can't, 
can't hardly stand to look at the newspaper. I have absolutely zero peace with the world. But the peace Paul is talking about is that which comes on the inside when we know we have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ without any question. And I'd bet a dollar to a greasy donut that there's at least half of you in here today that are struggling with that peace. And I'm not being mean-spirited because I struggle. Okay? I struggle with that peace because I see what's going on and I see what our world's doing and I know who Christ is in my life and sometimes I fail at being what God wants me to be and do. But I fall back on the fact that God has put his Holy Spirit in me by faith and that is what brings that peace between him and I. And you will never know true peace outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It just doesn't exist. You might find happiness in a new car. You might find happiness in being married. You might find happiness in watching your kids move out. Trust me, it happens. <laughs> to those of you that your kids haven't left yet, it's pretty neat. You don't have to buy generic food anymore. You can buy Charmin instead of the other stuff, okay? The only problem is you come home at night, the mess that you made is your mess and it's still there. You can't blame it on anyone else. But true peace comes from knowing Jesus Christ and having him and the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, moving in your soul, living in your thoughts, being prepared to be shared with others. That is what the peace Paul is talking about is. It's not being happy with the world. It's not, I can be at peace now, I have a new car. Nope, payment's coming, okay? Peace that he is speaking of is that rich indwelling, that fullness that comes when your heart is filled and busting with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the peace that indwells when you can just say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto that day. I ought to write that down. That ought to be a song. <laughs> but do not be deceived. Grace comes with a cost. With a cost, pardon me. It came at great cost to the Son of God. Christ went to the cross for us. We were the recipients of the greatest grace that could have ever been extended. And if you extend grace to others, if you're willing to crack open your heart and crack open your lives and extend to grace to others, there is a cost. It will cost you time. It will cost you sometimes your pride. It will cost you money. It will cost you your position. Frankly, we jockey too many times like NASCAR drivers trying to get to the head of the line. And frankly, we're not called to be at the head of the line. Christians are called to be servants, and servants sit in the back of the table. They sit away from the crowd. We're called to serve and extend grace because God has put it in our lives. And peace is the fruit of that grace. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasseth all comprehension will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The things of this world which seemingly are of the greatest importance are temporary. There's 
there's nothing on this world that survives. If, if, you are, uh, if you're really in, interested in, in the environment and green energy and all that, I've got a newsflash for you. God's going to burn this thing like a cinder. He's going to wipe it out. This building, gone. Everything you've ever seen with your eyes, gone. God's going to wipe this earth clean. He's going to do it with fire because it's all temporary. Nothing you can do in your life physically is permanent. Everything is temporary. You worried about your kids? I am. Worried about money? Don't need to be. Let the peace of God dwell in your life. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. If Christ dwells in your heart, that's the peace that's in your heart. That's the peace that sets us apart. And as we seek him and we seek his kingdom and as we seek his peace and we seek his joy and his, all the things that he is in our lives, we're reminded in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble for itself. Do you think he's talking about cars and houses and new iPhones and... Uh, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about peace and grace and joy and comfort. Not comfort from the world, but comfort and a knowledge knowing that God dwells within him. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 9 says, Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. How many of you mothers and fathers have prayed that because your children are absolutely off the rails? I've been there. I've watched my children make some mistakes that I just shuddered. I've seen people that I love dearly just make mistakes that just, you look at them and you go, what were you thinking? And then I look in the mirror and I realize that I have done the same thing in my own life and I have wondered, what was I doing? Why am I here and why did I want to do this to begin with? But you have to cast your cares upon the Lord and the worries. When I was in Bible college, we had a professor. His name was Mr. Chesley. Chesley was... This dude was something else. He was a master model builder. He had a show on PBS in Southern West Virginia on how to build models. Our library was filled full of airplane models. That's all he ever built. There was a B-52 bomber about this big that hung over one of the book racks to the point where he painted faces on the pilots that were in this model airplane. And before I graduated, the B-2 stealth bomber, anybody know what I'm talking about? That funky looking triangle thing? Had just come out. You know, they weren't gonna release any pictures till that dude at that little airplane flew overhead and got a picture of it. And they had this model down at the store and it was the B-2 bomber and this dude was supposed to be about this big. He was supposed to be really big. I said, man, I gotta have that. But I, I, I couldn't build a model if I had to. I just, I don't have that skill. But I thought to myself, man, if I get that model, I can give it to Mr. Chesley, and he can build it and put it in the library. And I took it to him, and I said, I don't care when you get it done. I don't care. I'm graduating in the spring. I'll never see it unless I come back. I don't care. But this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to build this model, 
And then I'd like for you to put 1 Peter 5, 6 and 9, 6 through 9, on a placard underneath it. And that's the one that says, the devil, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Because that airplane is the absolute picture of a lion on the hunt, quiet and stealthy and deadly. And the only time he roars is when he's got his prey. Watch the National Geographic channel. You want to see something, you watch a 200-pound cat chase something down and eat it. That's a sight to see, uh, hopefully after dinner. Moving on, Paul writes, in your faith in Christ, this picture here is a faith in Christ, is if you will, when we look at this passage, the word in literally has the idea of being totally submerged, totally, completely in. It's like going out in a submarine and sailing around and, and being on top of the water, you're fine in the submarine and you can jump off anytime you want and swim away, but you put that dude 200 feet underwater and you are in the submarine. You are embedded in him. You are deeply connected to him. But it's not just faith and an intellectual way. Is it just enough to believe? The demons believe. It isn't an intellectual ascent. How complicated does our faith have to be? Have we overcooked the soup, as some would say? Have we made faith so hard to grasp that people are turning their backs on any potential idea of hearing about it because it's just too hard? I've got a simple definition for you. It's a simple childlike definition of the word faith. Faith means to take God at his word. What he says he will do, he will do. What he says he will not do, he will not do. You know, there's only one thing in Scripture I found that God cannot do. God cannot lie. So whatever God has said he will do, he will do. Just remember John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's pretty simple. It doesn't get much more simpler than John 3.16. Do you have to believe? If you want to be saved, you do. Do you have to understand whether or not you're a trichotomist, a dichotomist? Do you have to understand the hypostatic union? Do you have to understand, understand um, election, predestination, foreknowledge, foreordination, all that stuff? No. Just need to know that you're a sinner and that Christ died for you. That's all you need to know to have faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as the first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ came, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what your faith has to be based on. Can't be based on anything else. Cannot have faith in the church. Certainly can't have faith in the Pope. Can't have faith in Bitcoin or anything else. Your faith has to be in God through Christ. So if we put our Christ, our childlike faith in Christ, believing we are sinners in need of being redeemed, what does that mean? 
there, there is so much in the book of Colossians about what Christ has done. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom have, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I literally got a change of address, and so did you if you trusted Christ. He took you from one family, the family of the devil, and he moved you into the family of his son. You actually got a new last name. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine what my life would be like without Christ in it. And I hope as you look at your life, one day you go, what would my life be without Christ? How bad would it be? I told Tony the other day, we we're having a, one of those moment-to-moment -moment conversations, you know, the kind that women want and men are afraid of, where I told her we were so close to divorce in 1987 before Christ stepped in. And I told her, I said, I cannot imagine what my life would have been like. Would my children have wanted to talk to me? Would I have ever seen my grandchildren? What would have become of her? I hope that when you stop and look at your faith, you say, there but for the grace of God go I. And I am what I am because of my faith in Christ. When you came to know Christ, the Apostle Paul said, you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision in your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and he has taken us out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. Somewhere, somebody has my mortgage. Somebody has a piece of paper that says they have as much right to my home as I have. I would, I would doubt that, but... I'm looking for that day when I get that piece of paper and I can burn it. I don't even know if they have a, do they even actually have a mortgage document anymore? Everything's electronic. But that used to be the thing. People would get together and help burn each other's mortgages. The same thing in our lives. Before we come to know Christ, there are a list of offenses that you have committed. And it says here that he took that list and nailed it to the cross and marked it paid in full as Christ hung on the cross. And then one of the greatest pictures ever, and, and, and I wish I had a way to illustrate this better, but in, in ancient days when a king would conquer another country, they would, they would take the king and the princes and the princesses and they would bind their hands together and then a parade, he would drag the victor, would drag them through the streets, pulling them along, dragging them through the streets, just make a total display out of them. Look how we vanquished the enemy. The enemy is vanquished. We have their king. And when we come to Christ, that's what he does. He looks at Satan and he says, look, I'm going to drag you through the streets because these people are no longer connected to you. You no longer have any power or influence in their lives. You have been defeated. And that and that is what our faith is all about. Satan has been defeated in our lives. Hebrews says it's impossible to please God without faith. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Then Paul, moving on, he says, love and love what you have for all the saints. Add one more observation for faith. Most of you know I'm a retired electrician. 
I have a tool here. I like tools. I have a bunch of them. I even know how to use some of them. This is a neat tool. It has a light, a little tester. I can tell whether something's electrically hot without actually touching it. You get close to it, this, this thing will go clear up to 1,000 volts. Well, I have no idea what kind of madman would use it anywhere near that kind of voltage, not me. And you use it, you turn it on, you get close to something and it'll beep, it's got some lights that light up on it, but it says on it, before using, test on known live circuit. So I have faith in this tool that works, but every time I use it, I have to check and make sure it still works. Not that way when you have faith in Christ. Once you have faith in Christ, your faith works. You don't have to check it against anything else. Once you have put your faith in Christ, it is a done deal. Paul moves on to love. Love is for today. Today, more than anything else, we need love. We need to learn to love each other. We need to learn to love those around us. We need to understand that love is by far the greatest commandment God ever gave us. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians, but now faith, hope, love abide these, but the greatest of these is love. When Christ was on the face of the earth, he loved man. He ministered to man. He did things that no other man could do. Yes, we know he was God in the flesh, but I want you to consider some of his miracles. Jairus' daughter, do you think he had a love? Do you think any man would resurrect another man's daughter if he didn't genuinely love? How about the man born blind? Restored his sight. How about the woman with the issue of blood? For years, had been unable to participate in any of the things that she wanted to be a part of. And yet he healed her. Why? Because he loved her. How about the lepers? Oh, come to the lepers. Not only did he get close, he touched them. That's great love. There's no other way to explain it. The Samaritan woman, we've been watching a program every now and then to have a scene where he encounters the Samaritan woman. And certainly she was a hateable enough creature in the show, but he loved her and he cared about her. The paralytic at the pool of Siloam. Can you imagine watching that guy get up and walk away after being crippled for all those years? Only somebody that loves could have done that. Yeah, each one of those miracles amplified the truth that Jesus was God in the flesh, but I think he healed out of love. And, and make no mistake, he didn't heal everybody he encountered. But when he healed, it was out of love. Scripture gives us several words for love. The first one is eros. It's that love between a man and his wife. And quite frankly, in its right context, that is a God-given state that glorifies God, that brings glory to Him. And in the wrong state, it brings a stain, it brings pain, it brings shame. Phileo, from where we get the word Philadelphia, you know the city of brotherly shove. It's the love between friends, a strong bond between people who have shared common values and then there's storge, which is the natural love of a child for a parent. But here the Apostle Paul is talking about a godlike love. It's a selfless love. It seeks the best for others, putting ourselves at the back of the heap, acting in the way that brings real glory to God. It's the equivalent of not eating the last piece of pizza. Love is not an emotion, but rather yet it's an act of your will. How many of you have been married? I'm not going to ask for hands. 
I can tell you this. Tony and I have been together for 45 years. I love that woman with all my heart. But there were times in our lives when we had to decide to love. Love is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. Just consider first, or Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you really think you were that lovable? You had all the stain and, sin and stain and stench of sin all over you, and Christ went to the cross a couple millennia before you were even born and paid for that sin. Because he loved. We are commanded numerous times in Scripture to love one another. Not just in a passing, how you doing way. Hey, I hope things are good. But rather yet, to pour our lives into others. Love is for today. It gets you through today's challenges. It gets you through that which seems insurmountable today. And then hope. These have been called the trilogy of virtues. And the final one is hope. It is for the future. How many of you, how many of you struggle with hope for the future? I'm looking around, man, and I'm just, I'm just hoping that our country holds together long enough for our children to, to at least experience some of it. And I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that our world doesn't self-destruct. I have lots of hope in this world, but my greatest hope is found later on in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, verse 27. Paul writing, he says, to him God will, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery of the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The great mystery religion. God in me. Not God in a box, not God on the wall, not God in a picture, not God in a concept, not God in a pretense, but in me dwells God. In the person of the Holy Spirit and Christ dwells within me. And if you're a believer, you can say the same thing. Within me, God dwells. Because that is the hope that we have. The only way we can live the Christian life is if we realize that because of God in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can move beyond the challenges of this day and we can live with our eyes fixed on the future. We can live, we can live knowing that Christ is coming again. We may not see him, we may, we may already be there when he returns, but I know at some point Christ is going to split the sky and he's going to call every person that's ever believed him home. First Thessalonians talks about it. The, the cemeteries are going to look like plowed ground. Pardon me. There's going to be false teeth and hips and elbows and everything else in the church when he calls them home and we're all going to go. How does that work? I don't have a clue. I don't know. How, how does... How does the man that fell into the steel vat who was burned to a cinder and he buried a hundred pound ingot, how does God find all the parts to stitch him back together to take him home with him? I don't know. But I believe it will happen because God has said it would. And that is our hope that someday we will be in the presence of our king. 
one of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture. I found in the little book of Titus. Titus says in verse, chapter 2 of verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and apparent of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Someday, someday that sky is going to split and we're going to see it. And if we die before that happens, when we leave this earth, when our failed old carbon bodies stop cell division and we die, and our life runs away from us, and we become just this mass of flesh, and we're standing in the presence of God, our hope will be fulfilled because we will see Him, and we will be forever with Him. And we will dwell with him. And then at some point, we're going to have the biggest meal you've ever seen in your life. And we're going to spend our eternity with the one who died for us. Because that's the hope of Christ in you. That's the hope. That's the faith. That's the love that God has poured into all of us. And because of those last three things, we should be able to live our lives in grace and peace amongst not only those in the church building, but also those that are on the outside. This morning, if you don't know that hope, if you don't know that faith, if you don't know that peace, please see me. Please see one of the other elders. Please do not leave this place with the taste of this message in your mouth because you're going to spend the rest of the day trying to forget what I've said and I'm going to spend the next week trying to remember everything I've said. Please don't let this moment be stolen from you by the devil. He's a thief and a liar. Father God, we're grateful for your word, for its power, for its purity, for its placement, for how it changes lives, how it empowers us to live beyond that what we see today. And more importantly, we are grateful that you sent your son to die for us. May this day be the day that, that someone makes a change in their heart. Whether we see him and talk to him or not, Lord, you know the heart. You know the individual. We'd ask this morning that you would move in a mighty way. Regardless of the date on the calendar, may today be the start of somebody's new year and new life. And Lord, we love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.